0: Before we look into Genesis chapter 13, let's pray together and ask for God's supernatural work to be done in us through his word. Would you bow with me? Father, would you please speak to us powerfully here through the text of your inspired word. Let it be your voice that created the heavens and the earth. Let it create in us new life. Let it transform us by the renewal of our minds. Would you fill us with your Holy Spirit? Help us to be attentive to your word. Help us to be soft-hearted and receptive, eager to understand it, to grab hold of it, to make it our own for how we live, how we view the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Before we read, the passage to kind of introduce what it will be about, I have a question for you, and it's a deceptively simple question. So the question is this I want you to think about it no, don't answer out loud, but think about it. who are you? who are you? If you did have to submit an answer for that if you if the assignment was to write that down and then I was going to read everybody's answer out. How would you define yourself? How would you identify yourself? How do you view yourself? Who are you? There's a lot of different ways you could go about identifying yourself. You can do it in relation to the people that you're connected with. You can say, well, I am the mother of such and such, or the father of such and such, or you can identify yourself more nationally. You can say, well, I am an American, Some of you may identify yourself more by your age. You may have started off in your answer mentally, well, I am a a senior citizen who, fill in the blank, or I'm a teenager who, or I'm a child. That may be part of how you identify yourself. Uh, You may identify yourself based on your looks. If you're really honest, you may say, I am a very attractive person, and that's who I am. Or on the flip side, you may feel the opposite, and you may say, I am not a very attractive person. You may identify yourself in terms of your social standing. I am one of the popular ones. Or you may identify yourself as one of the unpopular ones. Maybe it's in relation to your friend group. Might be related to your money. I am wealthy. I am poor. I am needy. You may identify yourself based on your past. You might point back to your past and say, because of some uh, bad decision that you made, this is who I am. Or maybe because of a bunch of good, good decisions, you've been very successful and you feel that that's who you are. We cobble together our sense of our identity a lot of different ways. It's probably different for each of you how you formulate that. The passage we're going to read today, by the time we get through the end of it and figure out what it means for us, is going to fortify our sense of identity as Christians. It's going to help us understand biblically who am I and how to define it. So I think it's going to be very helpful to you. If you remember last week, we saw that God's purposes prevail. Abram and Sarai went down to Egypt and made some possibly questionable decisions and faced some seeming obstacles and diversions from God's plan for them. But in the end, we saw that God's plan prevails in spite of hardship, famine, even possibly some bad decisions. His plan Prevails and his plan that we saw last week was to create a nation. That's what God is up to. He's creating a people for himself who will look to him as their God and who he will relate to as their God. They'll be his special people. That's what he's doing, and that is not going to be thwarted by anything. Now, in our passage in 13, the the next episode in the saga of Abram, they're back in the promised land, and we pick up with verse 2, setting the scene. Let's read it together. Genesis 13, verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where, we, where he had made an altar at the first and where Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So, the scene is set. If you remember at the beginning of last week's passage, when he first traveled to Egypt, it was because in 1210, there was a famine in the land, and the famine was severe in the land. That word severe is the same word translated very in chapter 13, verse 2. So, just as the land was severely famished, Abram was severely rich. He was very, very rich with livestock and gold and silver. If he was a hip-hop artist, his number one debut album would have said severely rich. And it would have showed Abram there with tons of livestock all around and gold and silver everywhere. Very, very rich. He had his original possessions, plus all those things that Pharaoh had given him when he tried to marry Sarai and let him keep. When they left, so he had his original things, all the stuff Pharaoh had given him, and then whatever multiplication of all that that God had brought about because of his promises to Abram. So God is proving faithful to Abram from his promises from the beginning of chapter 12 that you may remember if you've been with us over the last several weeks. Twelve two, God promised, I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name Great. So here's Abram. He's back to where he first started in chapter 12, verse 8. We saw him here. It says he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And now he's back in that place from this whole trip down to Egypt. He called upon the name of the Lord and built an altar in this place earlier. It's not described what that altar would have looked like or even exactly what he did at the altar and calling upon the name of the Lord, but it's associated with depending on God and worshiping God and gratitude to God and prayer to God. So he's back, back kind of where it seems like he belongs. But there is a problem. Let's read on at verse five. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great That they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So here is Lot. Lot has been mentioned kind of on the periphery of all these passages we've been studying. Uh, He was Abram's nephew, Lot's father had died way back. And Lot had just sort of been tagging along with his grandfather, Abraham's dad, or Abram's dad, and Abram. And when God called Abram to go to the land, Lot just kind of stuck with him and went with him. And as we read this, you can't help but wonder, should Lot have gone? Should Abram have allowed Lot to go with him? In 12.1, when God first called Abram, he said, go from your kindred. And Lot sort of is part of his kindred. Verse 12, 4 says, as Abram went, as the Lord told him, Lot went with them. The land was sufficient for the Canaanites and the Perizzites. These people, the Canaanites probably covers both of these groups. The Perizzites are probably the country folk. Based on my reading in the commentaries this week, I'm no expert in these histories, but they all seem to agree that the Canaanites are probably the city folks and the Perizzites kind of what they call the country folks outside of the city. The land could sustain those people, and yet it was insufficient for Abram and Lot. So they had huge amounts of livestock out there in this land, so huge that they couldn't continue to be together because it was just causing trouble. Remember, they were sort of nomads at this point, so there were no fences around their pastures. All their livestock was just the people were having to keep track of them, and whose was whose, and I'm grazing over here with my flock, you go over there, and there was trouble beginning to brew. Now, you can imagine what the Canaanites and Perizzites must have thought of this. This was their area, and then all of a sudden, Abram and Lot come in with these incredible multiplying amounts of stuff, and you can imagine if in your neighborhood, somebody moves in next door, and they've got tons of kids, and a chicken coop, and tons of pets, And every morning you wake up and it's like it all doubled overnight. And it's just more and more and more beginning to intrude over onto your property. This is sort of the picture of it. So there's a problem. And then in our next verses, Abram offers a solution. Verse 8. Let's see what Abram's solution is here. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen." See there, God, t- God told him to leave his kindred. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. Now, what do you think about this solution? Is this a good solution or a bad solution? Is this a wise solution or foolish solution? Well, it's a little bit complicated, and it's kind of a surprising solution if you've been following along in Genesis up to this point. In 12.7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. This was the promised land, central to everything God had called Abram out of Haran to go and do. And yet here, Abram, who by promise it was his land and by custom it would have been his dibs on the land because he was the uncle and Lot was the nephew. So it's almost like re-gifting. God gave Abram this land, and then Abram says, Lot, do you want it? It's hard to see how that's a lot different from Esau giving up his birthright. But a lot of people see a lot of good in this. You read about this passage, a lot of people say, well, this is exemplary peacemaking and generosity and open-handed trust in the Lord. But again, kind of like last week, I just don't think it's that clear whether all this was good, bad, wise, or foolish. It's really not spelled out or commented on. It's just laid out. This is what happened. Couldn't Abram have said, Lot, I love you. I'm so glad that we've had all this experience together and that the Lord is multiplying your blessings and your flock and everything. But as you know, God called me to this mission and I can let nothing thwart that. So I must settle in the land and you, with my blessings, go and and find another space. But that's not what Abram did. Abram completely open handed said, if you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, let's read what happens next. Lot's response to this opportunity in verse 10. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley And Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So Abram makes this amazingly generous offer to Lot. You know, clearly there's a problem. We need to separate. You tell me which way you want to go. It's all yours, and I'll go the other direction. And Lot could have said, Oh, revered uncle of mine, man of God, I respect you so much, and you are uh, rightfully the one who should make this decision, so I will defer to your decision. You choose where you want to go, and I will go otherwise. That's not how Lot responded. Lot, it says, lifted up his eyes and looked around. Uh, I don't know if that's literal. I don't know if he was at some high, high place where he could look and see you know, we went to Blowing Rock a couple of weeks ago, and the atmosphere was just clearer than normal, it seemed like, and we could see forever. So I don't know if it was something like that. He, he literally lifted his eyes and looked, or if that's figurative, and he kind of explored his options, but one way or the other, you can picture Lot looking this way and seeing a land that had at least recently been in a time of famine, and then looking over here and seeing like an oasis, pretty much is what it describes, like the Garden of the Lord, like Egypt, and he says, well, I'll go take that. I mean, if, you're, if you really are offering this, I'm going to go down there and take the fertile, well-watered land, and that's what he does. In the midst of that, it seems like a good decision for Lot. It seems like that's going to work out well, but there's these, this ominous foreshadowing about Sodom and Gomorrah sprinkled in. Mentioned there in verse uh, 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, And then down in verse 13, after we see that he moved as far as Sodom, which on the very edge of the land, there's actually a little discrepancy if if where Lot initially moved is even still in the promised land. If it is, it's just on the very, very edges of it. It says, now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. This is going to come back and be of interest later on in the book of Genesis. But that's where Lot went, and Abram settled in Canaan, the promised land. So even though he did hold it out there with such open hands, it worked out he stayed in the promised land as he was called to do. Now God enters the story in verse 14. Let's see what God's input is for all of this. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward, and eastward, and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So here's the first mention of God actually entering the story here, and God says, similarly to the way Lot lifted up his eyes and looked, God invites Abram to lift up his eyes and look, but not just eastward and westward to look all around, look at everything you can see because I'm going to give all of that to you. God restates his covenant promise to Abram. All that land is going to Abram, and God is going to multiply his offspring till it's innumerable. couldn't count all the offspring of Abram if you wanted to. Imagine if going home as an exercise to think more about this passage, you dug up a shovel load of dirt from your yard and brought it in and plopped it down on your kitchen table. And uh, you, or if you you gathered your family around and said, we're going to count every speck of dirt in this shovel load of dirt, and we're not going to stop until we get done. Well, there's no way you could accomplish that with just one shovel load of dirt. And God is saying, your offering is going to be like the dust of all the earth. There's going to be so many that are going to come from you. This nation is going to be so great. There's no way you could count it like the dust of the earth. And later on, that did end up, you see that multiplication constantly. When Israel, Israel was brought into Egypt a little bit later on, that was the problem. They were multiplying so much that the Egyptian rulers were getting edgy that they were going to take over everything. And that's why they enslaved them in the first place. So this comes true. And then he invites Abram to walk the land, which is a sign of ownership. If you've ever purchased a plot of land or a house, perhaps you remember the first time you went there after it was all said and done and it was your property, your house, probably more accurately the banks at that moment. But you were the one who got to pay that mortgage and it belonged to you and walking that property now as the owner of it, or walking through the rooms of that new house as the owner of it. That's what God was inviting Abram to do. He said, this is yours. Walk your land. Check it out. In the closing scene, verse 18, so Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So that's our passage for this morning. Now we need to come to some conclusions. What are we to make of this? All of God's word is breathed out by him and profitable for his people to grow in righteousness and instruction and training and to be equipped for every good work. So what are we to take from this? Now the reason I pointed out how it's a little ambiguous if you just look at the facts, whether Abram's decision-making is good, bad, wise, or foolish, is because I think, like I said last week, we often come to Old Testament narrative passages, history of Genesis, and try to pull out moral lessons. And that's not what they're there for. The stories in Genesis are not like stories in the Berenstein Bears books, where there's a story that takes place. uh, I remember one where one of the kids rode their bike through somebody's property they weren't supposed to, and through the ramifications of that, learn to listen to their mom and dad. You remember the Berenstein Bears books, right? You guys act like you never heard of Bears before the way you're looking at me. Each one was a a, a story, and in that story, you're, you're meant to take a moral lesson from it. That's not what these Old Testament passages are. This is the history of God and his people. These are the things that happened. And those who first receive it It was God's people post-Egypt, pre-promised land. So this was after they had been freed from Egypt, preparing to enter and conquer the promised land. So for them, the lesson could not have been, be like Abram, hold that land with an open hand, and if anybody else wants it, let them have it. That would have made no sense. They were called to go and conquer the land. So the moral, it can't be that we take from this passage, well, let's just try to be more like Abram. The best way to understand an Old Testament passage like this is to figure out what it must have meant when it was originally received. For those Israelites, it must have meant, remember who you are and how you fit in to God's purposes. As you're preparing to go and conquer this promised land where they have many gods and you only have one, and they have many armies and you only have one, remember who you are and how you fit into God's purposes passages like these, all this history would have served to convince them that that was their land given to them by God's decree. It would have convinced them that they were God's people set apart for God's purposes. It would have affirmed for them God's commitment to keeping his promises, and it would have given them the courage to proceed in obedience to God. So the question for us, as we want to respond to this passage, isn't What moral lesson do we take to try to be better people? The question for us is, where do we fit in to this history? Where do we fit in to God's purposes? And what he has been at work doing for generations upon generations already before we were even born. Reading into the New Testament as it interprets and makes sense and looks back on the Old Testament, we see exactly where we fit in. We are part of the innumerable offspring of Abram. We are part of the fulfillment of God's promises in these passages. Through Jesus Christ, even though we are not Jewish and we are not physically born of Abram, we are grafted in and adopted in to God's special nation, his people that he is building. Galatians 3 Verses seven through nine says, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Abram's name gets changed to Abraham a little bit later in Genesis, just in case anybody gets confused about that. It is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's all the nations that are not directly born of Abraham, all the non-Jewish people, including us, God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So as Christians, we locate ourselves in the timeline of what God is doing here by saying, if, if you're in Christ, if you have forsaken your sins and you're living by your own ways to become one of Jesus' people, trusting in him as your Savior and Lord. You've been adopted now into this movement that God has been working on for generations, building a people for himself who will love him, serve him, worship him, trust in him. And through Jesus, we get to be a part of that. And we are, in a very real way, still waiting for the promised land. We have a lot in common with those Israelites. If you're a Christian, you've been freed from slavery too, not from the Egyptians, but from your sins. If you're a Christian, you are awaiting a promised land as well, not Canaan, but what's described in the Bible as the new Jerusalem when Jesus returns and makes his kingdom permanent and final. I want to read to you Revelation 21, 1 through 4, describing what we are waiting for. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's where we're headed. We're the Israelites in the wilderness. God is going to bring us into this promised land one day. And there's all kinds of implications for this that are practical We don't have time to go through them all now, though I did have many, many, many of them in my sermon notes and it hurt me to take them out. But I love you and I try to make my sermons listenable and not too long. So I'll just end with the same question we began. How do you view yourself? Who are you? Do you define yourselves by the temporary earthly trappings of your life here? Or have you come to locate yourself in light of who you are in God's grand story, his narrative, what he is doing? Have you found yourself in that story? Or are you still looking for little shallow things to identify yourself with? As Christians, as those who've been redeemed by Jesus Christ and adopted into God's nation, God's kingdom, Whatever we face this week, we can remember who we are and how we fit into God's purposes. We are part of the movement of all movements. We are part of Abram's innumerable offspring. We are part of the special nation that God has been building for generations. We are citizens in the new Jerusalem. That's who we are as Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for preserving this history of you And your people, thank you for reminding us of who we are as Christians in light of what you are doing. Would you help us to live from that secure, deep sense of identity? Would you help us to view ourselves and the world this way? And would you please, through us, bring many others into the fold, into this nation, this kingdom? Lord, I pray for your people here, Pray for each individual here, wrestling with the things they're wrestling with, decisions to make, painful circumstances, opportunities, maybe just mundane aspects of daily grind. I pray that you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would empower us all to live as your people. Show us how to do that in our context. It must have been so clear for the Israelites to be your people, they were to go and conquer a land. For us, it be- can become so nebulous and ill-defined. And Would you help us, instruct us each one this week as we meditate on these things, what does it mean for me to live in light of my true identity as one of your people? Help us to respond well this week, in Jesus' name, amen.